Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now here's your host, Terry Brooks. Hey, good morning. And uh, as always, we want to thank uh, you for joining us, whether this is your 38th in a row uh, or whether this is your first. Uh, as Jesse said, the focus today is is really a pivot to January 2021 and the General Assembly. And we wanted to uh, share uh, the blueprint for the coming year. <clears throat> We're going to take the first half of today's segment and go into those policies as deeply as we can in a kind of like riding a motorcycle through an art gallery. So uh, we want you to uh, get a, an overview. Uh, there's lots of opportunities to dig in depth. <clears throat> At 1030, we're going to be joined by Senate President Stivers, and uh, he and I are going to have a conversation around the meta-narratives uh, for the 2021 session. Uh, I'm not going to go into depth on each issue. I'm going to be looking for trends that we all should be anticipating so just so you know the the purpose, I want to take just a brief period of time and make sure we're together on what the blueprint is. Again, some of you have been with us from the inception of the blueprint. Uh, others of you uh, know that uh, we really begin that process like a day after the gavel falls in the spring. So the, the first step that we take in building a blueprint is talking to lots of partners. And what we're looking for are common threads and common themes. As you know, our approach is then to confuse opinions with data. So we hear umpteen themes and we try to make sure that data supports, that it confirms or it's disconfirming of folks' hypotheses. So by that point, we're beginning to kind of get themes and buckets, and uh, and we're looking for that. Uh, we then take what I think uh, is an important step, and I'm the first one to tell you that everybody does not agree with this, but I agree with it, so that's kind of what we do. And that is that uh, we want to have principled pragmatism meaning we want to win, baby, win in Frankfurt. Uh, I look at, I uh, see that Cozair Charities is represented today. Uh, we work with the charities uh, around the abuse and neglect portion of the blueprint. Uh, it is not an accident that we're 14 for 14 over the last few years on abuse and neglect issues because we make sure that we shop these ideas with the administration, whether that's Matt Bevan or Andy Bashir, We shop it with minority representation in the House and Senate, and we shop it with majority leadership in the House and Senate. So what you see, what you're going to hear on the blueprint today is feasible in 2021. Do, do we have guaranteed wins? Absolutely not. Uh, is it reasonable to think we can win on all of these? Absolutely. Uh, there is nothing on the blueprint, including budget priorities, 
that has not been reviewed by the executive branch and leadership in both parties, in both chambers. So I just want to stress to you, and, and you know why I'm telling you that, right? Because we know that the narrative that is out there is that Frankfurt is bifurcated and polarized and toxic. And, and the narrative that is out there is that all in the world that is going to happen in Frankfurt this January is the General Assembly is going to fight with the governor and the governor is going to fight with the General Assembly. That, that still may happen. But you know our theme and I know your theme, which is kids and families represent common ground. The other aspects that you're going to hear from the blueprint is no one, including Terry Brooks, gets everything they want on that blueprint. Uh, there are a couple items that, you know, like I really, really want that are not feasible in 2021 and they're not on there. So, so don't get all bummed if your particular item is not on there. We, we try to have a reasonable, limited scope of work. The other thing that I want to be really upfront about <clears throat> is that we have tried to pay attention to, to two uh, issues that you can't ignore in 2020. One is we have tried to look at policy recommendations through the lens of the pandemic, what does that mean? Especially what does it mean around budget items? Secondly, I think we all are increasingly aware of disparities in outcomes. Those disparities may be by zip code. It may be by the color of that little boy or little girl's skin. And so the other thing that we, we looked at hard was what does every one of these policy recommendations what does every budget priority recommendation, what, what do they say around addressing disparities, whether it's by geography or ethnicity? So principled pragmatism, intentional looks at disparities, and the fact that, that what we have on the table can happen. Uh, what I hope that last point conveys is, and, and you're going to hear this throughout the session. We need you. These issues, these ideas, these notions can all happen, but they can all happen only with your engagement. So none of these are pie in the sky. None of these should be seen as that's a nice theoretical construct. No, they are all calls for action and they're all calls for action from you. So I want to dig in. I was supposed to end this at 1010. Jesse, you'll notice it's exactly 1010. Uh, and I'm going to kick this to uh, Mahek Cholera, who uh, is our chief policy officer. And uh, she is going to begin architecting specific policies. And then at about 1028, we're going to have uh, Jennifer Hancock uh, intercede and give you a preview of next week. And uh, then we'll have President Stivers uh, come on and he and I'll have a conversation on the ethos of Frankfurt in January 2021. So, Mahek, take it away. Thanks, Terry. And thanks for laying out the process for this year's and our policy, um, this year's policy agenda, as well as our previous year's. 
how we formulated the blueprint. And so as a reminder to our um, advocates that are joining here today, that the blueprint stands on three pillars. So thriving communities launch strong families, strong families launch successful kids, and successful kids launch a prosperous future for Kentucky. And as Terry alluded to, um, the Commonwealth is addressing two dual pandemics right now, the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as uh, addressing systematic racism. And so the blueprint speaks with a common voice to create a brighter future for all kids in Kentucky. And so with that being said, I'm going to kick off things by um, sharing some health policy priorities that will be hopefully implemented this 2021 legislative session. And I know a lot of the advocates that have joined today and that have listened to our forums in the past are really familiar with some of these topics. So the first one being Kentucky can expand local tobacco control by curbing, um, can really expand local tobacco control by um, really repealing a 24 year old state law, which would allow cities and counties um, to really more effectively respond to the use, distribution, sale of tobacco products, including e-cigarettes. And we know um, research has already shown that youth who've used e-cigarette products are <clears throat> seven times more likely to get COVID-19 than non-e-cigarette users. So moving on to the next policy, Kentucky can ensure children and families continue to access the health care they need during this time. And so during the this pandemic, it's even more vital that everyone has access to health insurance so that they get the care that they need. Yet COVID-19 has highlighted the pre-existing racial disparities in health coverage and care. So the solution that we're really going for in this year's state budget is sustaining the investments on Medicaid, KCHIP, and Medicaid expansion, and prioritizing, um, focusing on closing the gap of coverage, especially among the black and brown communities. And then the next policy is allowing paid family leave for state employees. So when families welcome a new child, whether it's by birth or adoption, working parents should not have to choose whether caring for their loved ones or risking their financial um, stability. And so we're really hoping that this year we focus on focus our efforts on paid family leave that could be the first step for state employees and hopefully building on. And so I am now going to turn it over to Courtney Downs, who can share really the remaining policies. All right, thank you. So I'm going to start by talking about three of the justice policies that we're advocating for in 2021. So um, as many of you know, Kentucky has the third highest rate of parental incarceration in the nation, meaning that thousands of kids across the state um, are potentially being negatively impacted by their parents' absence. So what we wanna do is advocate for a system that reserves incarceration for those who uh, pose a risk to public safety uh, by using more community-based alternatives um, for people who have committed a nonviolent offense and prioritize access to treatment for those who are struggling with substance use disorder. The next one um, is establishing a minimum age. So Kentucky is one of only 13 states that doesn't have a minimum age of jurisdiction, which means that children of any age can have a complaint filed against them and ultimately be brought before a judge. Um, and just for context, the youngest child to be complained on this year was eight and last year the youngest was seven. And when we look at the racial disparities that are existent across the justice system, young children are not exempt. 
Um, youth of color are more likely to be perceived as being older than they are, less in need of support um, or nurturing, and more culpable than their white peers. And these are all factors that contribute to Black youth having more complaints filed against them. Um, in Jefferson County, Black youth make up 23% of the population under 13 and 68% of the complaints filed. And we know that early interactions with the justice system potentially exposes children to trauma, it disrupts their education, and it can increase the likelihood of incarceration later in their lives. Kentucky has made tremendous strides in reforming the juvenile justice system over the years, and we can continue to do so by establishing a minimum age um, of at least 12 that a child can be charged with an offense and connect the child and their family to community-based services instead of sending them through the juvenile justice system, which is incredibly easy to get into and uh, much more difficult to get out of. And the, the third justice uh, issue, is um, eliminating the mandatory transfer. So currently, uh, KRS states that anyone who is at least 14 and in possession of a firearm during the alleged commission of a felony will be charged as an adult. The gun doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to have been discharged. And if there is more than one person um, there, they will all be held to the same standard. Um, in any other instance, judges have full discretion when deciding whether a case should be heard in juvenile court or adult court. Um, and they can use a list of factors that can include anything from the seriousness of offense and maturity of the child, um, public safety, the child's public rec record, and then what's in the best interest of the child and the community in addition to a few others. So what we're advocating for is that judges be afforded the same discretion in cases involving firearms as they are in every other case. And now I'm gonna pass it to Ben to talk about student wellness and family childcare. Yeah, thank you so much, Courtney. I'll start first with family childcare. And as we know, childcare has become quite the topic of conversation throughout Kentucky uh, in part because of the pandemic, but I think it's also important to recognize and remember that uh, building and sustaining an equitable uh, childcare system in Kentucky predates the pandemic. As I'm sure many of you remember, even before the pandemic and since, half of all Kentuckians live in childcare deserts, and those are places where families have limited or no access to childcare. We also know that 14% of parents quit a job, did not take a job, or greatly changed their job due to problems with childcare. An item that we've identified for this legislative session is expanding access to family child care. What family child care is, it's child care for a small number of children in a residential private home in a residential private neighborhood. Unfortunately, there are burdensome local planning and zoning regulations throughout Kentucky cities and counties that often create a large impediment or totally forbid these family child care operators from even starting or having the hope of starting their business. We know that by uh, carving out uh, a state item to exempt these family, family child care providers, uh, we can ensure that they have an easier time in getting their business started. And if we think about it, uh, it's a great way to eliminate that child care desert problem. Um, if we have a county without a more commercial center and an individual is able to open a regulated child care uh, facility within their home, makes it easier for them to sustain as a business model, helps to close gaps, and rest assured they are regulated. Uh, they maintain the safety, uh, health, and well-being of all children in those individual homes. So we hope that you'll join us in supporting that piece of legislation this year. I'm transitioning now to the next slide. Uh, 
We also want to ensure that we invest in an infrastructure to close the digital divide. Uh, we know, especially in these times in the era of NTI and other online instruction platforms, that that digital, digital divide is wreaking havoc in the student success of students across our Commonwealth. However, we also know that even before the pandemic and once the pandemic is over and our students are back in school, we know that access to the internet has huge impacts on equitable access to education and really the uh, ability uh, that you are able to achieve in school. We also need to remember the impact that access to broadband internet has on health, especially in, era, in the era of telehealth. And it's quite sad to note that at present, Kentucky ranks 40th in broadband access. So we certainly have our work cut out for us. Another element that we'll be focusing on this year uh, is that we will be working to ensure dedicated funding to implement a program called the Expanded Care Services Policy. What this policy does is it makes school districts able to bill Medicaid for health services provided to Medicaid eligible students within the school building or in a virtual setting. Uh, this is something that Kentucky can do. We have approval from the federal government to do it. And we should endeavor to do that in order to increase access to medical services to students throughout the school day. Um, when we think about the needs of our students, this is certainly a way that schools can step in to provide that need. We also want to take a look and always remember our Family Resource and Youth Service Centers, or the acronym FRISC, which some of you may be more familiar with. Uh, when we talk about FRISC and the essential services that they provide through stu for students throughout the school day, uh, we know that that's important. We know we have evidence of that pre-pandemic, but I think many of you all might be surprised to learn that from March 16th to June 30th of this year during the pandemic, FRISC continued to coordinate over 49,000 home visits, supported more than 10,000 parents through support groups, and made referrals to mental health services, food assistance, and NTI support. So when we think about FRISC, we need to consider their importance both during the pre-pandemic, currently in the pandemic, and certainly post-pandemic. And with that, I'll hand things back over to Courtney. All right, thank you. So I'm going to quickly go through our kinship and child welfare uh, related budget items and then wrap up with some child abuse and neglect policy items. Um, so we know that when kids are allowed to live with a relative or a close family friend, that it helps to reduce the trauma they often experienced when they're removed from their home. Uh, we also know that when caregivers are asked to take a child or children in, it's usually without a lot of advance notice, meaning that some of the physical, emotional, or financial preparation that would usually go into bringing a child or multiple children into your home kind of has to be figured out in the moment or after the fact. So we want to sustain our investments in prevention and preservation services and ensure that they are focused on the front end of the child welfare system so that the resources that caregivers need, like respite care, um, are always available to them. And we want to ensure that every eligible caregiver is provided with a one-time financial support known as the relative placement support benefit so that they can purchase essential items for the kids like clothing, bedding, uh, formula, and school supplies. Um, and then we also want to continue investing, you can go to the next slide. We also wanna continue investing in services and supports that help to strengthen statewide efforts to prevent child abuse and neglect. 
we know that substance abuse is a major factor for over half of children removed from their homes. So investing in programs like K-STEP and START are often, are proven, I should say, to um, help parents achieve sobriety while also safely caring for their children. And it's important to point out that for every dollar that we spend on the START program, Kentucky saves $2.22 in out-of-home care costs. Um, and the next one we want to talk about home uh, home visiting programs. So when parents use evidence-informed home visitation programs like HANDS, which stands for the Health Access Nurturing Development Services Program, um, early in their program, there is a proven, or early in their pregnancy, I'm sorry, there is a proven increase in the adequate uh, prenatal care. There are lower rates of preterm birth and low birth weight, um, and also lowered in incidences of child abuse. So with continued investment in this program, it ensures that it will be available uh, to new parents who need it across the state. And we want to invest in um, forensic services for children who experience maltreatment. Um, as we said at the top, Kentucky has the highest rate of child abuse and neglect in the country, but there are only five full-time child abuse pediatricians to respond to all of those cases across the state. Uh, the pediatric forensic teams that are based out of UofL and UK, um, in addition to the 15 child advocacy centers across the state, rely on state funding to provide assessments, examinations, and also other critical services to children who have experienced physical abuse, sexual abuse, or neglect. So an increase in funding will allow them to expand their teams and ensure that the most vulnerable children can access the services that they need. And finally, we want to protect the safety net programs, including those that provide financial assistance for basic needs um, and that they aren't modified. We want to ensure that they aren't modified in a way that keeps children who need these supports from receiving them. Now I just want to wrap up with some of our policy um, policy priorities for child abuse and neglect specifically. Uh, so the first one is we want to modify the mandatory reporting laws to disallow the chain of command reporting procedures occurring in public and private agencies. Uh, basically what that means is that the person who receives the disclosure should be the one to report the abuse. Um, and it's also important to mention that any uh, internal policies around notifying a supervisor uh, when reporting the abuse would still be intact with this specific change. Um, the next one is we wanna remove the clergy penitent privilege in cases of child maltreatment, meaning all clergy would be mandated to report when they receive a disclosure of child abuse or neglect. And finally, we want to strengthen the current statute of limitation timeframes for cases of sexual abuse that involve a minor. So the current statute of limitations runs out after five years or five years after their 18th birthday. So extending this time frame will allow for delayed disclosures, which we know occur in most cases of sexual abuse. So now we're going to shift gears a bit and I am going to pass it to the president and CEO at Volunteers of America Mid-States, Jennifer Hancock. I don't believe Jennifer is on just yet. So um, during this time, I think I just wanna say thank you to the policy team, cause I know it's a lot of labor of love to come up with these ideas and moving this forward. Um, but I do also wanna share some resources so that way you all um, as advocates are prepared for this legislative session. Jesse, do you wanna um, share the website so we could find the fact sheets and the budget checklist and other resources available? Sure, and I can kind of walk through this just really quickly for folks if that's helpful. So this is, if you go to policy on our website and then go to Blueprint for Kentucky's Children, you'll see all of these. Um, so we have, 
you can click on any of these and it will um, drop down and, and you can open up this PDF fact sheet. We have all the fact sheets together here if you want to look at the entire packet and for each of these priority items that we just discussed. I also want to give a plug for becoming a Blueprint Partner. If your organization is not listed here, but you are on this forum, you may want to consider becoming a Blueprint Partner. And to do that, uh, there's a form here. It's really simple. And um, we would love to have you sign on as a partner. And then um, we are also going to have um, later today, we're going to post the recording of this forum on this page. And we are also going to have new this year, a social media kit with sample social media posts. So if you are an advocate and you care about these um, policy priorities, and you would like to, you know, promote these on your personal or your organizational social media, you can do that by um, checking out these sample social media posts. Um, so that will be on here later today. And also just looking ahead to, we will have this up in January, um, the Kentucky General Assembly Bill Tracker. Those of you who were um, kind of following the session along with us last year or in the past few years really know that we have that bill tracker where we track not only Blueprint for Kentucky's children bills, but also other bills that are good for kids because there are other bills that um, we support and we follow, but that maybe aren't Blueprint priorities, but want those of you who care about policies that are good for kids um, to know about. So um, we will have that there as well. And if you don't already know where to um, find your legislator or um, especially those of you who maybe are going to have changes in your legislators once the session starts. Um, you can go um, or if you want to direct other folks to this, we have an entire advocacy toolkit that has um, a legislator lookup tool and you go to that and you can just enter in your address and it will pop up your legislators along with your um, contact information for those legislators, including I think their social media handles, email, phone number, all of that stuff. So that's just a helpful tool to point folks to um, that would also include like board members and volunteers and anyone else who may um, want to um, become engaged in advocacy but doesn't know how to do that just yet. I'm going to turn it over to you, Jennifer. All right. Well, hi, Jesse, and good morning, everyone. I am so pleased to be with you today. Um, it is my pleasure to uh, get to talk with you about a preview for next week, as well as to introduce today's special guest. So today you heard about many of our Blueprint for Kentucky's Children's state policy and budget priorities. And next week's Advocate Virtual Forum is going to dig even deeper into one of those priorities that is really near and dear to me. We're gonna be discussing the intersection of incarceration, substance use disorder, and parenting, including new data about mothers who are incarcerated and state policy changes that would allow parents to be held accountable while remaining connected to their kids. I don't know if you all talked today uh, about the fact that Kentucky has the third highest rate of kids who have experienced the crisis and trauma of having a parent incarcerated. And we know in Kentucky, our correction costs continue to climb at alarming rates, and yet we have solutions to address the root cause. 
So we're going to hear directly from parents who were incarcerated and staff at Volunteers of America's treatment programs for formerly incarcerated moms, including one of my all-time favorite people, Charlie Downs. Charlie is a mother of four. She's a formerly incarcerated mother. She's a Freedom House graduate. She's a participant of the Jefferson County Family Recovery Court, co-author of a recent editorial on parental incarceration, and she's my newest Volunteers of America colleague. So I can't wait for you to meet her. We are so proud to be partnering with KYA on a Vera Institute project that is addressing parental incarceration and Cholly is helping us with that project now. That project's in Laurel and Clay counties. We can't wait to share more with you next week, so I hope to see you then. So now speaking of Laurel and Clay counties, I wanna make sure that you know that without a doubt, our state Senate president carries a big policy stick. I think we all know that. He is smart and he is principled, and he arguably has the best strategic policy brain in Frankfurt. And he is a father and grandfather who doesn't compartmentalize those parts of himself when considering what Kentucky kids need. He wants solutions that work and that can be validated with data. And once convinced, he's all in. As an example, he's helped us deliver our second healthy baby to a Freedom House mama in Clay County. Now, not literally, but figuratively, <laughs> um, but picture that if you will. Uh, he has done that through both his professional and personal support for that program. So I'm really thrilled that he's able to be with us today and share insights into what we can expect in 2021 and I hope we get a peek behind the curtain of his smarts and hearts approach. So please help me welcome President Robert Stivers. Hey, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, and Mr. President, uh, we are so appreciative that you're joining us. Uh, Jennifer, I noticed that you totally ignored kicking to me because you were afraid that I would want to talk about the early results of the college basketball season. Uh, so, uh, Mr. So President... Bad. Mr. President, we are really happy to have you. Uh, uh, folks on the call have already heard me talk about that uh, one of the first stops we make uh, after partners share ideas on the blueprint is we generally do three things initially. We contact the Senate President's office, we contact the Senate President's office, and then we contact the Senate President's office. And uh, we always count on you to give us straight up talk. Uh, encouragement, but counsel, and, and you do that all the time. So, so welcome. Uh, I also shared with our partners, uh, you know, the two or 300 of your best friends who are on this call, uh, that we're going to talk big picture, not specific. And every time that I hear you talk about this, uh, I learn so much. So I want to talk, I want to open by asking you to make a connection that I just find fascinating. And I, I hear you talk about how uh, the biography of your mom, how somebody moving from Boston to Eastern Kentucky uh, still animates your thinking, your priorities, and uh, how you view things. So I want to open it up with that kind of open-ended question and just invite you to share a little bit uh, about how that is such an influential lever on you. 
Well, thanks, Terry and, and Jennifer. Um, let me start by getting into that. Uh, people talk about culture shock. If you can go back to 1945, which is 75 years ago, my mother was born and raised about an hour outside of Boston. She went to Simmons College and did her undergraduate work and then got her master's in um, allied health and sciences. She was a master's level dietitian. And it was kind of an oddity because she got her master's from Harvard, which in 19, actually she worked a year or two after that in the early 1940s, women didn't go to Harvard at that time, at least not many. And then uh, because of circumstances, family circumstances, she became aware of Onita Baptist Institute, a little small school in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky and Frontier Nursing Service, who had a program it's become a little bit of controversial that they took some of the things from Leslie County, but had a program related to midwifery. And she came there on part mission and came there on part state contract to do work with post and prenatal uh, healthcare and diets, dietetics for um, pregnant women. And so now you jump 75 years uh, ahead and here I am helping volunteers of America deal with uh, pregnant women in a cycle of chemical dependency, uh, which, which has similar impacts. If you don't have good healthcare nutrition during the developmental stage, the forming formational stages of the child in utero, well, you're gonna have a lot of problems um, in the future. And the same thing is true today with um, children who are in utero of a mother who is uh, abusing alcohol or abusing drugs. And, and I guess through my time with my mother and many discussions, which she's been gone now for close to 10 years, um, that was always a passion of hers. And I guess it kind of transferred and wound up the seed was planted with me. So that's, um, uh, a little bit about that story, but she came sight unseen from Boston to Oneida. So if you think you have culture shock today, think what it was like coming from Boston to Oneida, Kentucky in 1945. And then she met my dad coming out of the war in 47, married. And my, my final statement on that is, what do you get when you cross a Bostonian with a Clay County? You get me. <laughs> so that's, well, that that's a that is a perfect segue because one of the other things that I hear you talk about, and this is not recent, but uh, it's been historic, and uh, I could not agree with you more on this. But you articulate it better than anybody else in Frankfurt, which is uh, you you totally uh, disagree with this idea that we have rural Kentucky and urban Kentucky. I've, I've heard you so often talk about that needs of kids and needs of families and needs of community that Manchester and Louisville or, or London and Lexington have a whole lot more in common. And yet we know that lots of voices tend to segment and divide that. And I'm wondering if you could, again, what we're looking for and our partners know this is we're looking for your big picture thinking today because you have big picture thinking. So I always appreciate you, 
doing that rural urban commonality uh, conversation. Can you kind of offer your perspective on that? Well, uh, just because of the volume, the mass, the, the population centers, uh, it makes for economics and logistics and delivery of service uh, much more reasonable to be located in Lexington or Louisville. And those two entities, and I use them as entities, have statewide missions well beyond the geographic borders of the counties that they're located in. And I can tell you how that works uh, because I fly out of the Louisville airport or the Lexington airport, and you're not going to be able to have an airport in every city. It just doesn't work. You're not going to have major universities in every city because you need that consolidation of people and personnel and, and just the numbers to make things work. It's the same thing for healthcare and the development of expertise. Uh, we're not going to have a NICU unit, uh, a neonatal unit in every city or county. It just doesn't work that way from economics, nor are you going to be able to have the individuals with the expertise to be able to develop that expertise, to be able to link in to the university uh, network of research uh, in rural areas. But you can definitely make the links back to the rural areas. And it's become a more and more prevalent, Terry, uh, to do this because broadband and internet and, and all the things related to remote connections. But we have to have um, that bridge, that collaboration between the, the urban rural areas, the metropolitan, the country areas, however you want to, to, to label it, because we all have different assets and we all have different things we bring to the table. And I'm certain the reason you set this up with a Louisville Cardinal directly behind your head so everybody can see <laughs> is that they know that you're a Cardinals fan and not a Cats fan. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's true that when, when you think about, um, you know, I, I have a friend today uh, and people hear me talk about my guys and my friends, we go watch UK basketball uh, and UK football but one of my friends is up at Markey today. He's got pancreatic cancer. And that, that facility can't be located in Hazard, Kentucky. It needs to be in Lexington. But that's where I say that mission goes well beyond um, the geographic boundaries of Fayette County. Same thing in Louisville. I had a dozen students from uh, Clay County going to the University of Louisville. Two of them happened to be my children. Uh, so it, it's so imperative that we try to erase these artificial boundaries that we have created because things that are needed from the rural areas, be it coal, be it energy, be it the ag communities and delivery of soybean and corn and cattle are, are imperative to the, the urban areas, the, the metropolitan areas. But that economic dynamic, that intellectual dynamic, that I shouldn't say intellectual, academic may be a better term. Academic dynamic, the, the ability to get to health care, to entertainment, to transportation. Uh, we need that out in the state. And it's, it's such a symbiotic relationship. And, and it's so readily evident on our state seal with the individual from the rural area, with the city urbanite 
standing in the middle of it and around those two individuals is united. We stand and divided, we fall. Right. Well, you know, the other commonality, uh, and I, I don't think any of these folks would mind me saying this, is uh, part of what your your leadership team uh, gave us as homework, uh, Mr. President, was we talked to Senator Carroll and we talked to Senator Gibbons and Senator McDaniels and Senator Rocky Adams and Senator Schroeder and Senator Wise and Senator Westerfield about the blueprint. And then, then yesterday we talked to the minority caucus in the house. And while there's lots of differences between those cadres views on lots of things, when it came to kids, Man, the commonality was was striking, which which I find really encouraging. Uh, something that I think our partners know is that for the last several years, every year the Senate has had sort of a headline theme for kids: uh, juvenile justice, school accountability, child welfare. Uh, most recently, it was school safety. So I'm wondering, and, and we know this is a weird year. We know, you know, that that one budget, one year budget, we know there's going to be an emphasis perhaps on defining uh, branches of government responsibilities. I'm doing that diplomatically. We know there's a lot of other issues out there, but the final gavel has fallen and we're, you know, we're finished with 2021. Uh, I'm wondering if you have a crystal ball prediction on two or three things that you think will pop up when it comes to kids, families, and the 2021 General Assembly. Well, there's there's three things everybody has to understand. And, and I just finished a call with the governor's office and my counterparts in the House, and a large part of that call was about session protocols. Um when you think about this, um, who's going to be allowed in to um, the facility, be it the annex, be it the, the capital, um, how we protect our members, how we protect our staff. That's going to, I, I say all this, that it's not relevant to no, the, yeah. to the substance for which you're talking about, but it is very relevant as to the logistics of anything happening. And it is a caveat to say, don't think much can happen out of this session because that's one reason. The second reason is, is the 30 day session, which is going to be limited in our capabilities because of the first issue related to COVID. And then the 30 day session with logistical um, problems related to COVID and then throw on that, that we're going to try to do a one year budget, which was the other part of the discussion today with the governor's office. And, and Terry, you've, seen me be very critical of the governor's office about a lot of the things, the way he's handled this, but I will also be very plain spoken. Uh, we've had two very good zoom meetings in the last couple of weeks discussing the budget and the ultimate policy document. We can have all the substantive language we want, but if we don't have the finances to support it, it's not, it's just a pipe during, so we've got to come up with a one-year budget in a time that is extremely uncertain. Uh, as you see, businesses going in and out of, of operation, some of them permanently, um, means our revenues are really fluctuating or, or potential fluctuation. We're trying to see what the federal government wants to do. 
with another uh, CARES Act or Stimulus Act. So with all that in mind, I, I just say you got to think of we got to maintain what we've got. But then I think probably the biggest thing that would be impactful, uh, and this may not be the, the mindset of everybody else, but the number one thing I think we could do for kids, and it's not something directly that will come into their household as we're working with their parents or working with them or having a school program, is to develop the broadband slash internet um, structure, the, the infrastructure, because we are seeing so much and we're an example of it today of how this is going to become a bigger and bigger delivery component of everything. Um, you now order online to get your Christmas presents. Your medical treatments are online. Your school is online. Your business uh, meetings are online. Um, personal contact, which I think is a huge component um, of day-to-day of -day life, uh, and I can't undervalue it, right now has been restricted. So what do we do? The best thing we can do to get reach out to children and give them opportunities is through this mechanism. And I think that's going to be a big priority of everybody's is to look uh, and it, to look at broadband and internet and how we get access, not just the last mile on the on the rural farm, uh, but as I heard one of my new acquaintances, Katura Heron, tell me that broadband right next to Churchill Downs is terrible. Um, so that's a common problem everywhere, not just in the rural areas, but everywhere. And that really impacts our ability to deliver a product, an educational product, uh, to our children. And, and I think that's so critical right now, especially when we've all been separated uh, purposely, but for reason, by COVID. So I, I think that's going to be the biggest issue that will be impactful for children. Um, the other thing I think we're going to have to have a discussion on is... Um, how we better assess this whole uh, environment on children. Uh, we don't know that this process, which I speak of, about delivery of education, how good it is. Um, we're hearing that there are less and less reports of child abuse, even though there is a serious belief that there is probably greater um, volume of children being abused or neglected. Uh, but how do you how do you know all this? Uh, access to health care, it kind of links back into the abuse and neglect. Um, delivery and understanding of of how are children getting served in the way of appropriate nutrition? this is such a new world that we just don't have good monitors. So I think there's going to be a little bit of discussion on that. So delivery of education, delivery of a global child welfare uh, monitoring, because we just don't have a good grasp on it. I think those are probably two of the biggest things. And then hopefully maintaining what we have in a budget, which 
goes back to the first component I made, the uh, first uh, kind of analogy I made, the ultimate policy document is the budget. So I think those are the three things people should really look at going into this session and seeing where we're going. I appreciate that. Uh, another big picture uh, uh, issue that uh, looking at the partners on this call and, and looking at our just published Kids Count uh, report, uh, we can't not talk about it. And that is disparities. Uh, for a long time, you have talked about zip code disparities, and you've also been very upfront talking about racial disparities. Uh, it's not lost on me that you and Gerald Neal uh, shared some proposals around criminal justice reform. Your legal background has always made you uh, a really thoughtful person around juvenile justice reform and its impact on kids of color. Uh we know that headlines have been grabbed uh, in the past few months around racial divides, and I would also continue to suggest zip code divides. So can, can you give us a little bit of a reflection of where the Senate sits in looking at that issue, uh, how to incorporate it in how you do your deliberations? Well, first of all, I'm going to talk about something that Jennifer said. Um, we are trying to model in Southeast Kentucky, a restorative justice program, which deals with juveniles. And instead of going through the system, um, trying to do a little bit different system to where the, the victim and the individual um, get together and we try to figure out a different trajectory and a different track than going in the juvenile justice system. There's been some success, some pretty good success in Louisville doing that. So let's see if it can work out um, in the, the rural areas. So we've got a seven county project. Am I convinced that it will work? Um, not yet, but we're going to do a two-year pilot and we'll see what the data says. We've got a monitor in Eastern Kentucky University and their justice uh, program doing that to quantify the information. So, you know, I, and what I can say about that is we know what we're doing is not being that effective. So let's step back and see if we can find some things that are more effective. And that, that's one right there is to start looking at that. Um, secondly, that is a component of criminal justice reform, but I'm not, and some people may kind of raise their eyebrows when I say this, um, I'm not really that big into justice reform in the sense that we need to start rewriting criminal laws. Uh, what, what I see is not a disparity impact on based on the laws. What I see is a disparity of impact based on the economics, uh, the lack of opportunity, the lack of hope, then that person falls into despair. And what do they do? They turn to drugs and criminal activities. So when you see people in the criminal justice system, that's a symptom. That's a symptom of a problem. The problem is we need to get opportunity into, and, and I don't want to say uh, racial areas or, or zip code areas, but it's into places that are impoverished. Uh, let's get the health care in there. Let's get access to appropriate food. Let's get access to job training and skills. Um, let's, do all those things and, and create opportunity for people to succeed and excel. And then if they have that opportunity and take that opportunity, 
they're less likely, not not totally, but less likely to drop into a downward cycle of drugs and criminal conduct. So um, for those individuals that have gotten there, yes, we need to make a determination. Are they individuals that we can help through modifying the, the, the justice system to where instead of incarceration, we can get them rehabilitation, job training, and skills. I'd prefer to start that before they get there. But once they are there in the system, let's look at to differentiate between those people who can be helped, who but for a problem, whatever it may be, a car wreck or a bad family environment, could be a viable and productive citizen if they had some job skills training, some, some transitional housing, um, things of that nature to get them out of the system because that's ultimately what we want. And it's not to me, again, what we're looking at, the resolution of the criminal justice system goes back then to economics and giving everybody that ability to have that economic opportunity of a home, uh, the ability to have a good job, good health care, to leave something for their children to make it a little bit better off than what they saw. Thanks. Your uh, your office, your the good folks in your office made it very clear that if I didn't get you out of here on time, they were going to come look for me. So I want to mm-hmm. end it with a question. Uh, there are a lot of folks on this call who are uh, what I'd call gifted and talented uh, when it comes to advocacy and contact and uh, elected officials. I'm especially happy that there are some other folks on here who are just beginning to dip their toe in that water. Uh, I don't know how you see it. I, I think the narrative that's out there actually discourages engagement. People feel like, what can we do to impact our elected leaders? But I always hear you give folks the opposite advice that you and your colleagues want to hear from constituents, want to hear from from uh, citizens. Can you take just a minute before I honor your time frame and just talk to us about why everybody on this call have an obligation? and an opportunity to reach out to uh, to their senator, their representative, and ways to do that? Well, I'm not going to just say senator or representative, but I would also say to your local county judge, your local mayor, your local school board, your fiscal court, your your whomever your local governing bodies are related to traditional county government merged or, or merged government like Lexington and Louisville, um, and understand also what the issues are that they will, you know, there's different issues we'll handle here versus different issues that will be handled at the local school board and where the appropriate venue is to do the advocacy. But yes, um, you know, it's great to hear from you, Terry. You live in Louisville, but you don't live in Manchester. Um, And that local businessman, that local school teacher, that local lawyer, that local doctor, um, the local individual that gets out and sees what's happening in the community is who really um, can drive and help form the policy and opinions of the legislature. It's, it's great to have lobbyists, you know, they, they can educate you on issues and if they're good lobbyists, they'll give you both sides, but to get the opinion of what the pulse is back in your district and the pulse of the state, it's to those individuals I named. And, and what an old guy taught me long ago, you spell every one of them the same way, V-O-T-E-R. 
<laughs> and so th- those are the people who send you here. Those are the voters, be it the doctor, the lawyer, the school teacher, the farmer, the drugstore owner, the, 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 the dress and shop owner, the furniture store owner, the gas station guy. You know, those are the people that, that are your employers. I'm just the employee. And so uh, to hear from people uh, and do it in a, in a, in a collegial, respectful um, tone, because we hear a lot and you need to try to be passionate, but in your discussion, make sure that you stay a little bit of, uh, of being controlled. Because uh, sometimes during these periods, and you've seen it, Terry, and other people have seen it, it can get pretty tense and pretty hectic. Uh, and and people need to maintain a certain decorum and appropriateness when they get involved in these things. Well, thanks. You know, we opened the call today. I, I described that what I hoped folks in Frankfurt saw our efforts, the Blueprints efforts, as being an example of principled pragmatism. And when I think about kids, there is not a more principled pragmatist. There is not a a more forceful voice for kids in Frankfurt than Robert Stivers. And Mr. President, I know you have a uh, tight schedule today and you taking time to talk to all of us means so much. And I just want to thank you for what you've done historically and what you're doing today for kids and families uh, across the Commonwealth. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you, Terry. And I do have to go. Uh, they've okay. just walked in my office and looked Got at it. me. All, All right. right. Jesse, you. I think I'm kicking it to you. Yeah. The only thing I have to add is thank you to everyone for joining today. Thank you to Aetna Better Health for um, their support of this forum. Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.